If you would, if you have your Bible with you and you're following along that way, uh, please open to the first chapter of the Matthew of Gospel, uh, of Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter of Matthew. It's, it's uh, the first page of your New Testament, so um, please turn there. Uh, we're, in a way, I'm starting two series this morning. We're starting a series in Matthew's Gospel, which today we're starting a two-week Advent series to talk about the coming of the Lord and the birth narratives, but then it'll just flow into our next series, which we'll be talking about, which is going to be titled uh, uh, Disciple 1.0, uh, an exploration of the original release through Matthew's eyes. And so what we want to look at in that series is, is really, we, we, we are working on this idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in version 20.19 coming up in a couple of weeks. And that'll be released. And, and so we need to make sure that whatever it is we're doing in this version, that it, it in some way is accomplishing what was intended in the original release of 1.0. What did Matthew intend a disciple to look like? And so that's what we're going to be exploring starting in, in, in um, the, the new year. But today it's Advent, so we're, we're going we're to call it that. We're not using the new title, but it is still really one series through uh, Matthew's Gospel. If you would, join me uh, in our text, Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read the chapter in whole, uh, and then we will pray and explore this chapter. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of uh, Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of uh, Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of uh, uh, Ammon, Uh, Ammon the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile or the deportation to Babylon. After the, <clears throat> excuse me, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of... Did I, did I repeat myself in here somewhere? No? Am I doing okay? I'm, I'm rolling? Like a B minus maybe on this? <laughs> Okay, 15, Elihu, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matthan, Matthan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the father of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of the Messiah, of Jesus the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged. To be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, celebrating Advent means learning how to wait. Learning how to wait. An art which our impatient age has forgotten. I think he's right. We want everything right now. Though we are sure glad that you know how to wait. Indeed, you know how to wait. Teach us, Lord Jesus, how to wait. To wait for your second coming and live at the same time in the reality of your first coming. Fill our hearts with vision for what you are doing on the earth, what you are doing through your church, through us, to you be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Whether we're talking about Charlottesville, Virginia, Las Vegas, the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman um, uh, Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, or maybe conflicts at the border with caravans, wildfires in, ironically, Paradise, California, it's clear that the world needs peace. This is why we need to pause and consider the coming of Christ. This is why we need to pause and consider Advent. Advent's just another word for the coming of the Lord. And it's been used in our family, that is the church, for millennia to describe that season in which we celebrate the Lord's coming, often taking every Sunday in December. Now, we we are a little bit less liturgically traditional church, and so we don't every Sunday in December do that. But I do like to stop and pause and take more than just Christmas Day or Christmas Eve and, and consider this event every year because it does teach us some things. Why should we celebrate Advent? Why, what, what exactly are we celebrating? What has, for instance, the coming of Christ changed? Some might argue that it doesn't seem to have changed much of anything. Well, we don't celebrate Advent because the world was transformed by it to look like some sort of courier and Ives print. That's not why we celebrate Advent. Jesus came because the world we live in is is not filled with peace, but violence, conflict, and brokenness. In fact, if you may recall uh, the the story of Noah's flood, the the reason that the earth was destroyed, if you look back in Genesis chapter 6, is because it was filled with violence. It was filled with a lack of peace. There was no peace. But yet, God promised, after destroying all those violent people, that He would never do that again. He would never destroy that way again. 
So how is he going to deal with this violence, the hostility of humanity? And the answer is Advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus. We celebrate Advent because there is only one who can bring about the restoration of shalom, of of peace. Shalom is just the Hebrew word for peace. We, We don't celebrate Advent because Jesus came and fixed all the problems that existed in the world. Jesus came into a broken world to bring peace. But in order to bring peace, he actually had to do what first? He had to bring a sword. In fact, there's a place where he says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now there it's talking about the sword that people would receive on account of the fact that by following him, there would be division and people would hate them. So in that sense, he certainly brings a sword. But I'm going to suggest today that he brings another kind of sword, but not the kind that the world brings. You see, Rome brought peace through a sword. Just as America brings peace through a strong military presence. Jesus came to bring peace, but his sword is a different kind of sword. At prayer on Friday morning, by the way, we we have prayer every Friday morning at 630 um, in the church office. So not this building, not that building, but across the parking lot, church offices. 630 to 730, you can come for all or part, half hour, 15 minutes, whatever works for you. Small group of us gather to pray every week. And I was just praying through the 46th Psalm, and I happened to be using my my, uh, uh, Christian standard version of the Bible, um, CSB, and and it read differently. I usually have the NIV when I'm reading, and and, and it's a little obscured there. You wouldn't notice it as much, but but in in the, the Christian standard or the English standard version, it's very clear. Something jumped out at me, and it Beginning in verse 7 of Psalm 46, it says, The Lord of hosts. Now, I know when I read hosts, that it means armies. You know, you might think, well, look at that vast army. There's a whole host of them. That's what the word host means. You see it, Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. Same word. The Lord of hosts is with us. And I, and I wondered when I read that, I, I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. With us. Because I'm studying for Matthew 1. Emmanuel means God with us. And of course that comes from Isaiah. And and I wondered, is there any connection between Emmanuel and what's said here in the original behind Psalm 46? Because Emmanuel, Emmanuel is just the preposition with, and then you just shove uh, uh, us on the back end of it and it makes one word, Emmanuel. Okay, that's how they do it. They shove words together and all of a sudden you got another word. And it means with us. And then on the end of that, L, God. Emmanuel, God with us. So I wondered, is there any relationship between that and when it says the Lord of armies is with us? So I just went in my computer and went right to Psalm 46 and looked at verse 7. And it's uh, Adonai, Yahweh, uh, and, and, and then of, of armies. And then the next word is Emmanuel. Well, yeah, it's the same thing, except instead of saying El, it uses one of God's names, the Lord of armies. That's not the part that surprised me, but what surprised me is what came next. Verse, uh, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. What kind? <laughs> Verse 9, he makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The Lord of armies is making a war on war. He's making a war on war and all the implements of war. 
that was unexpected for me. I'm, I'm like most people. I, I would expect in human thinking that, that it would have read, the, the Lord of armies is coming and he's going to make war until everybody on earth submits to him. Now that's how I expect to read it. And, and frankly, that's how most of us as Christians don't read it but think it. In other words, that just kind of lingers around floating around in our heads because you know we just envision the way God's going to take the world as well, he's going to take over and we're going to pass all the laws and we're going to make everybody submit to what is right. Because we've got a force to make that happen. But he's coming to make war on war. As we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, we're celebrating the Lord of armies who came to make war on war. And he will bring peace. That's that sword that he's bringing. It's a kingdom of peace that will bring about peace by a completely other means. Well, let's turn our attention to the text. And I'm going to cover it today. And if you've got a handout, you'll notice uh, in the handout the three headings just for your able, ability to follow along. But um, real simple today. It's mathematical. You've got two fathers, five mothers. And 42 generations. Two fathers, five mothers, 42 generations. And don't think just because the last one is 42 that it's going to be so much longer than the other ones. Okay, It's really actually the shortest one, but it's 42 generations. So, so two fathers, five mothers, uh, 42 generations. The first one, two fathers. And, and, and this first section of Matthew's gospel, it... it, it, it Matthew wasn't written with chapters. Matthew didn't write chapter 1, chapter 2, you know, chapter 3. But he, he did use literary structures, writing conventions of the time, to indicate where things were kind of sectioned off. And so we know that chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 16 is the first unit, if you will, or the first chapter, if they had used that language. And, and so that section is all about the origin and identification of Jesus Christ. So that's what we we start right off with is that very issue. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. The, The words which Matthew penned, so to speak, in Greek are the same words that were used to begin each section of the book of Genesis. There it was the record of the origin of so and so. Uh, maybe Noah, maybe Abram, maybe, you know, and, and on and on. He had these various records uh, uh, that were there. Each of those headed a section, and, and then it told what came from that person. So the, the record of the origin of Noah told about his sons and his sons' sons and so on, that his descendants starts with somebody and speaks to the descendants. But here in Matthew, it's the reverse of that. You start with Jesus and you go backward, ancestors. Um, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, which I encourage, it's a great resource um, as study Bibles go, I, it, just because it, all it does is help open up the, the cultural context of the time, and that can be useful. But it says this, it says, in Genesis, the phrase is followed by a list of the person's descendants who depend on their ancestor for their meaning. Matthew, by contrast, lists not Jesus' descendants, but his ancestors. Jesus is so pivotal for Israel's history that even his ancestors depend on him for their purpose and meaning. Well said. 
It's true that in an earthly sense, of course, Jesus came from them. But in a very real sense, they came from him, and he defines what they were all about. You could also read this phrase without being mistaken in any way. Uh, the, the, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. The record of the Genesis. The beginning. The origin of Jesus Christ. And by using that language right from the book of Genesis, Matthew is communicating that in Jesus Christ, there is another beginning. There is another beginning. Something new. A Genesis. He had two fathers. Son of David, son of Abraham. I'm going to take them in order from chronological order. Start with Abraham, work my way to David. Let's start with Abraham. Matthew begins his gospel quite frankly, the same place he ends his gospel. But we might miss it if we're not careful. It ends focused on the nations. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, ethne, every people group. We get the word ethnic from it. It's not political states. We're not making disciples of political states and governments and that kind of thing. We're making disciples of every people group on earth. The boundaries are broken wide open, in other words. But he begins there also. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You might say, I don't see it there. I understand, but let's take a moment and consider. You see, Luke's genealogy goes all the way back, not to Abraham, but where it keeps going, right? Where does Luke bring it to? Adam. And many will say that, well, Luke brings it all the way back to Adam because he's more interested in the whole human race, not just the Jewish race. Well, I would suggest to you that while it is true that Luke is very interested in the whole human race, that Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham because he's interested in the whole human race. Not because he's less interested in the whole human race. He's interested in it and is going to explain that theologically in a way different than what Luke did. You see... Matthew wants us to know, and you'll note in this first three and a half chapters that he'll frequently use this phrase, and throughout the gospel, but particularly here, this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill what was spoken, and then he quoted an Old Testament promise. Matthew wants us to be utterly assured that Jesus' origins are in the promise of God, and that promise began with God's promise to Abraham, or Abram at the time. Matthew 12, verse 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth, every ethne, all peoples on earth, will be blessed through you. Three more times in the story of Abraham, we see this either direct declaration or an allusion to this blessing for the nations of the world. At the promise of a son through Sarah in Genesis 17. No, 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 not Ishmael. I'm going to give Sarah a son. What do we read? I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. More specifically, when discussing his relationship with with Abram uh, prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, We read this, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. There it is explicitly again. And then right after Abraham passed the ultimate test, Genesis 22, when 
when he was told to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and he was willing, he was obedient, and but for the Lord, who knew all along he was going to stop him, but the Lord stopping him, he passes that test. And what do we read? We read there uh, that, that uh, because of that willingness, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. <clears throat> Matthew begins by tying Jesus directly to the promise to bless the, the nations of the world, the peoples of the world. And he ends sending disciples into all the world to do exactly what we're told back in Genesis 18 that Abraham did with his children. To go make disciples in the same way that Abraham discipled his children. How did Abraham disciple his children? Well, in Genesis 18, we're told that he taught his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Jesus said to go make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I'd suggest those are almost identically one and the same thing. If they're doing what Jesus said, they're going to be doing righteousness and justice. So that's Abraham. David, son of David, son of Abraham. David was promised a son that would sit on the throne forever, bringing peace. Jesus is that son of David. Frederick Bruner said the following in his commentary. He said, the, the, name of, the name son of David says, Israel, behold your Messiah. And the name son of Abraham says, nations, behold your hope. Jesus is both in one. Amen. Advent is about God fulfilling his promise to bless the nations of the world. And that blessing includes peace. In fact, you could say that peace is just another word for that blessing. See, in Genesis 1.28, God blessed Adam and man, male and female, and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. But because of the fall in Genesis 3, that blessing ended and a curse came. In Abram, God restarts that blessing. I'm going to not only bless you, but I'm going to bless all nations through you. That, that changes everything we think about why Abram was chosen. Abram wasn't chosen because God's exclusive. Abram was chosen because God wants to reach the world. By the way, that's also true of you and me. If we are the elect of God, we are chosen indeed, but we're not a cul-de-sac. We're a through street. It doesn't end with us. It begins with us and goes through us to the world. That's the whole point and purpose of God's election throughout Scripture. Blessing, the blessing of God. Why would you want to bring this blessing to the world? Because it transforms the world into a place of peace. It, it restores shalom, the peace of God, the way God created us to live to begin with. So we've looked at two fathers. Now let's look at five mothers. There are five women specifically named in the genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew 1. And by the way, there's a typo in your notes because there's a typo in my notes. And yes, I'm the source of the typo. In case you're wondering, that would be me. Um, I don't know why it's there. It just is. How I missed it, I don't know until this morning. But that should read Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Obed was a man, by the way. And how he got in this list, I don't know. And, and Mary. So you've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, uh, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. And you could group these into four and one, Mary being separate from the other four. The other four are mentioned in real close proximity to each other, and they're all, they all precede Solomon. Um, so 
we would, in, in Americans in the 21st century would tend to ask, why are only four women mentioned? These children all had mothers. Why do you even bother mentioning the men? In fact, might be the next question for most Americans. I mean, after all, it's not their bodies, and what, what did they have to, you know, what role do they have? But that's not the right question. It, the right question for a first or second century audience would have, they would have asked something like, why mention the women? Or they might have said, well, you know, it's fine to mention some of the women, but if you're going to mention some of the women, why not, why not mention the, the matriarchs of Israel? Why not mention Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah? And I can understand why they would leave out Rachel because she wasn't in the descendant, you know, Judah through to Jesus. But but the, at least the other three, right? Why, why not mention them? And they, they, there might be some more noteworthy characters one could, could put as you read through the Old Testament in that list. In most genealogies of the Old Testament, the names of the men were more than sufficient. And when women are mentioned, when some of these moms are mentioned, they're mentioned to demonstrate one of two things. Either the purity of the line, it's really a pure priestly line or really a pure you know whatever tribe it is their line or the dignity of that line that particular strain in the family if you will that branch like you know why do you why are you interested in you know your your ancestry well I'd, I'd like to think I came from a king you know I was a child growing up with a name like Caesar my dad of course told me hey your name means king so I kind of grew up thinking that must mean I have kings in my ancestry and then one day as I became an adult it dawned on me there are a lot of people named king don't mean nothing. <laughs> I mean a thing at all. That's, you know, shattered my world. But anyway, they, they would be in there to demonstrate the dignity of that line. These women do anything but demonstrate that Jesus was descended from a pure Jewish family line. The, the, the line, I mean, for that matter, it shows that David didn't descend from a pure Jewish family line. There were four Gentiles in that family ancestry. And, and, and as far as adding dignity, at least a couple of them have some serious questionable behavior in their lives. So what do these four women have in common? It's popular in you know, our day for people to highlight how sinful these women were. But I think that reflects more in our culture than theirs. Um, it, I was talking with somebody over lunch recently, and this is just conversing. And they were talking about, they brought up, you know, inductive Bible study, that, that observation... Uh, interpretation and and uh, application. He says, man, that's that's what we need to do: observation, interpretation, application. I I said, yeah, there's one problem with that. I said, well, they said, what do, you, what do you mean? I said, well, that that grid assumes that your observations are correct. That that you come to it and make observations that are the observations you should make. I don't assume that the observations I make are the observations I should make. And so I, you need to add another eye. It's better to see with two eyes than with one, right? And so it needs to be observation, investigation, interpretation, application. Now, I'll grant that that's in large degree my job when we're going through a series. Is, it's my job to do hours and hours of investigation so that we can distill on Sundays and say, here's some background that's important to understand this text. But all of us should be aware as we read our Bibles that what we bring to the, the table might be a little bit like our children playing in the mud and they come in the house. They bring in a lot of stuff with them that you'd rather leave outside, right? And we go to the Bible, we bring a lot of stuff with us that we get all over the floor that we'd re- be better off leaving outside. 
and trying to figure out what it was that that original audience would have brought to the table. In the Jewish world, although Tamar and Ruth certainly pushed the boundaries a little, they were not considered immoral. We just did the the Tamar story a little while back in our Genesis series. Uh, She would have been held to be in almost as high esteem as Ruth. Rahab and Bathsheba certainly didn't enhance the dignity of the family line. Rahab's previous career, well, I mean, she's called Rahab the harlot for a reason, um, is is, um, uh, well past the boundary, and Bathsheba is only mentioned as the wife of Uriah. <laughs> the wife of Uriah. Uh, but if you're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, you are probably familiar that her infidelity is described in detail. So she's not enhancing the dignity of the line at all. The obvious link that all four women share is that they were Gentiles. Tamar was a Canaanite, Rahab from Jericho, Ruth a Moabite, and Bathsheba is only described by her Gentile husband Uriah, the Hittite, as we know from the Old Testament. Now, her personal ancestry is unclear. Was she Jewish? Was she Hittite? All we know is that her grandfather was a dark character in the story of David and Absalom, giving wicked counsel to Absalom. He was first a counselor to his father and giving wicked counsel to Absalom about how to treat his father's concubines and so forth. But, but we really don't know, but, but it doesn't matter, because once she married Uriah, she would have been considered a Gentile. Uh, there's a lady that was a hope. She was a part of our church for a number of years, and she shared her story with me, uh, her life story. And somewhere in middle of her life, she married a Palestinian man. She was Jewish, raised, grown, born in New York, raised there, but, but Jewish. And, and she, she married a Palestinian man and lived in Israel. And she discovered rather quickly what it was like to be a Palestinian dog because she was now a Palestinian dog. And she would be called that. She would be just, you know, just spoken ill of right there in public and just like a Palestinian because why? Because once she married into that, she was just that. Okay, well, likewise, Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. She was considered to be a Hittite at that point. So the reason we have these women in here is that they are Gentiles. These, the four Jewish matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, have been replaced, if you will, with four Gentile matriarchs. Now, what does that matter? What does it mean for you and me? It means that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is as much a Gentile Messiah as he is a Jewish Messiah. It speaks, amen. It speaks to the worldwide implications of all that Jesus will do. He is God's anointed one to deliver you, you Gentiles. Amen. Just as much as he is to deliver you Jews. Matthew's gospel opens with that end in mind. Go into all the nations. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of every people group. It means that when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in the latter part of the chapter. And said she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. That his people includes you and me. 
That's what it means. Because his people was both Jewish and Gentile. Long before Acts chapter 15, Frederick Bruner tells us, and the Council of Jerusalem there in Acts 15, God made clear that his work has been interracial and that God is no narrow nationalist or racist. Amen. It means Christmas is every bit as much about God rescuing the person on the other side of the social tracks from you, though the one who is very much not like you, Christmas is as much about God rescuing them as it is about God rescuing you. So those are the four mothers, but then we have one other mother, Mary. Now, Mary is not a Gentile. Of course, obviously she had four of them in her family line, at least, right, that we know of right here. Mary is actually more like the traditional matriarchs of Israel. She's more like Sarah, more like uh, Rebecca, more like Rachel and Leah. Now, Sarah, she's really like Sarah, whose womb was dead. Her husband was well along in years. And Sarah had the child of promise. Rachel, who had great difficulty getting pregnant, but finally gave birth to Joseph. Oh, and by the way, Joseph, Rachel, who had great difficulty getting pregnant, finally gives birth to Joseph, uh, who saves the world from starvation. He saves his family, yes, but in the process of saving his family, he saves Egypt and all the caravans of people from all around the world coming, the known world at the time, to get food. He saves the world. You can kind of see a picture there of Jesus as well. Now, not included in the matriarchs of, of Israel, but certainly Hannah is, is prominent in their history. Mother of Samuel, unable to bear children, but the Lord heard her cry. That, she, she fits a little bit into this story, and being, Mary being like her, we'll see in a moment why I say that. And I think we should mention, though she's certainly not one of the matriarchs of, of, of Israel, she is one of those Gentile matriarchs that we just looked at, Tamar. Because remember, Tamar experienced that same childlessness. And then there's Ruth. We should mention her as well. Because her husband died without her having any children. And of course, then there's Bathsheba, who's also mentioned. And so the three of these women do have this similarity to Mary. Bathsheba gave birth to the first kingly son of David. The other two were barren. Mary's situation, however, was significantly, as far as problematic for childbearing, it it significantly raises the bar over Sarah or or Rachel or Hannah. I mean, Sarah was barren even when she was of childbearing age, and now she's like well past that by a few decades. That's a big deal. And of course her husband, well, he apparently didn't have any ability either. So whatever's going on, I mean, there's a problem. That's a problem. Uh, Hannah, she couldn't bear children crying out to the Lord, repeatedly being mocked for that. You know, Rachel, you know the story. But, but then, but then there's, there's Mary. She hasn't been with a man. Now, that's a little bit hard to have children. I mean, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with how that science works, but but it's difficult to have children if you haven't been with a man. Now, if you're that person in the crowd that says, yeah, but I just, I just really have a hard time 
believing in this whole gospel thing because how, it's not possible scientifically for somebody to be born of a virgin. Listen, I get it, but if you're going to struggle there, the whole resurrection from the dead is going to be a bigger deal anyway. <laughs> I mean, let's just start with that. Uh, we can name a number of other issues, okay? So if you start with the premise that there is no God who interacts and intervenes with the world as we know it, then of course there could be no virgin birth. But if you don't start with that premise, which by the way, nobody started with that premise until a few hundred years ago anyway. That's a new thing. That's a new way of thinking. And, And who's to say it's right? I mean, who do you have faith in that told you that that was right? If you start with the premise that the God who created everything can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and oh, by the way, if he can create the human reproductive system, I think he can figure out a virgin birth. Not a problem for him. Or raise somebody from the dead. Jesus is the ultimate child of promise. So all these other children of promise that came to women who were, have, had difficulty bearing, Jesus is the ultimate child of promise. And he's the ultimate promised son to David. And that leads us to 42 generations. Verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I get 42 from 3 times 14. Numbers in the Bible are, are important. They have symbolic meaning oftentimes in Scripture. You remember Jesus' wilderness testing? It was uh, 40 days, which corresponded with Israel's 40 years, so that had a symbolic meaning. God made the world in how many days? Six days, and on the seventh day he did what? He rested. But if you remember our study in Genesis, that language of God resting is the same language they used at the time to say that he sat on his throne. The seventh day, God came to dwell among the people in the place he had created. He created it to be a dwelling of God with man. Well, if you've got 14 generations times 3, so you have, what's 14? 2 times 7. So you have 6, 7 seven, uh, generation periods, followed by another series of generations that begins in Jesus Christ. So you have six of them. So just think about this. God made a covenant with Abraham to restore the blessing of Genesis 1.28 for the, to the nations of the world. And, and from there, there have been six, seven generation spans, which means Jesus is the beginning of that seventh. So in Jesus, the work of God is completed in all its vast array, as we saw in Genesis 2.1 on the seventh day. In Jesus, God is dwelling with us, as we see in Genesis 2 on the seventh day, God takes up his throne amongst us. And by the way, his throne turns out to be a cross, but we get to that later in the, in, in the gospel. In Jesus, access is regained to the tree of life. And this is all exactly what we see in this first scene that comes at the end of chapter 1. I'm not going to read those verses again. We read them at the beginning, but verses 18 through 25, I want to talk about that scene. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Now, the closest thing we have to betrothal is engagement. Betrothal was more serious. If you broke off a betrothal, you had to get a divorce. Even though you had not yet consummated the marriage, you were only, quote, engaged, as we would say it. 
but he's engaged to her. But let's think about what that meant there. Joseph was probably in his mid to late 20s. Mary was probably 14. They didn't have any interaction. He decided that he was interested in possibly marrying her. He was ready to get married. He goes to the father and asks. The father gives his approval. They're now betrothed. He and Mary are allowed to have no time alone together. They can be there as others are around them, but time alone would be uh, forbidden completely. And so, frankly, at this point, he doesn't really know her very well still. In our romantic era, it's hard to even conceive of that, okay? I I get that, but I'm just trying to describe that and what what that meant for them. She starts showing. (laughs) Well, he's pretty clear. That ain't my kid, so (laughs) there's a problem here. But he's a godly man. He's a kind man. You see, by Jewish law... He could bring her before the city elders and demand that he get paid back anything he gave to the father as a bride price and keep the dowry that he would have been given. But that would put her in shame publicly, so he doesn't want to do that. So instead he decides, you know what, I'll give her a certificate of divorce that breaks off our betrothal. I'll do it quietly. She's able to get remarried somewhere. I don't know what's going on there, but don't really need to get in the middle of that. And I'll just go about my my way. That's really quite gracious of him. But God had different plans. I mean, I, I know Mary deserves a lot of credit for her willingness, which Luke brings out. But Joseph clearly displays a, a, a love over selfishness in this scene. But then Joseph has a dream. Does that sound familiar? Joseph having dreams? In fact, Between the first two chapters of Matthew, Joseph has several dreams. Joseph seems to be dreaming all the time. And and, and so uh, Joseph the dreamer has reappeared. It's just a different Joseph. But he's still dreaming and it's still about the deliverance of God's people. Three times language is used to communicate that Jesus is God with us. In verse 18, the language is, if read rather woodenly, you might read it this way. Before the coming together of them, she was found to have a child in her womb from the Holy Spirit. And I, as, I, as I read that and, and looked at it and was thinking about what's being said, I was struck by the pedestrian nature of the language that Matthew penned. And he's like, you know, yeah, and she had, a, she had her third son, Billy, and, you know, blah, 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 you know. Yeah, oh, yeah she, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Like, yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> in verse 20, the child conceived in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, Matthew wants to make sure we don't miss it, so he spells it out plainly. Quoting from Isaiah, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yeah, it was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Of course, that's God with us. The primary actor in Matthew 1 is God. As for Mary, her role in Matthew 1 is entirely passive, and Joseph, as kind as he was had to have his plans utterly interrupted by God in a dream before he had a clue to what was going on. It's just like God, isn't it? We often think, you know, I was seeking God, I was this. We'd we'd have been groping in the dark forever, but for God coming along and interrupting our lives. Amen? And listen, it's still true. Only the Holy Spirit can generate Christ inside of anyone. Yourself included. And we need Christ to be formed in us. And that can only happen as a work of the Holy Spirit. 
Just as we see in Genesis, in the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water to carry out the Father's command and to turn chaos into order. So here, the Holy Spirit is hovering about, carrying the Father's command, the virgin shall be with child. And the rest of Matthew shows the Holy Spirit begins turning chaos into order again. Not just for Bethlehem or Jerusalem or Judea or Israel, but for the entire world. And that continues as he sends the uh, disciples into all the world to make disciples. Have you ever experienced the work of the Spirit which turns chaos into order? Many of you have, amen? Many of you haven't and you need to. You see... The work of the Spirit is how He's going to bring about peace. He's going to restore this shalom, this way the world God made it, the, the way God made the world to be. Or to put it in another way, as disciples learn to obey everything He commanded. But in order for that to happen, there has to be a sword that comes to your own heart also. A sword that destroys the hostility of your own heart. You see, the problem with God coming and just wiping out all injustice and all evil is that he'd have to do like he did in Noah's time. There's one guy that eh, kind of makes it. The rest of you, you're gone. He'd have to destroy all of us. It's easy for us to think about the evil that others do, but if we were just on the outside looking in, we might see the evil that others see in us and the hostility and the anger. and the... So a sword has to come to our own hearts, or maybe rather we should say a cross, by which we are crucified with him and him with us. And then we are raised to new life in him. Advent was a time of waiting. Advent reminds us that we are still waiting. But the the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Those who listen to the Messiah, Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, they experience the kingdom of heaven. As Bonhoeffer said, not all can wait. Certainly not those who are satisfied, contented, and feel that they, have, that they live in the best of all possible worlds. But listen, for those of us who are not satisfied, for those of us who, who recognize that things are not as they ought to be, Advent is a reminder of how they are coming. God, the Lord of armies, with us, making war cease in and through us. First, he makes war cease in us. We need that. Then he makes war cease through us. O Lord of armies, come and do your work. God with us. Amen.